1: Hello, thank you for downloading the Times Redbox podcast. Luke Jones here for Matt Chorley. Luke Jones. Luke Jones. Yeah, Luke Jones. And thank you very much for your company. We are going to think about 15 years of international affairs in a moment with the help of Sir Robin Niblett, who is standing down as the boss of Chatham House, the... uh much-lauded international affairs think tank. Um, He's going to be taking us through a busy period in office for him. First, though, we'll hear from our columnists today, Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists,
2: the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. with Daniel Finkelstein and
1: David Aronovich
2: on Times Radio
1: I know that's been the same throughout, but every time I hear it it sounds more ludicrous. It
3: does. And in fact, funny enough, <laughs> each week I laugh at it, even though I've heard it so many times already.
1: Um well welcome both, all the same. Thanks very much for your time here. Um Danny Finkelstein and David Ronovich. Um lots to discuss this morning. Um before we get to everything else, shall we start with uh which has been rumbling for a while, but the the situation facing the Chancellor and in the papers this morning and there's a bit of this around yesterday as well, growing calls for well, first of all for him to publish his tax um tax forms and, and those of his of his wife as well, and um, by way of nipping this in the bud, and also questions about what he might be doing a, a, and his future. Danny, what do you think? Is this a kind of dangerous time for the Chancellor? Is it something where he should be thinking, yeah. or maybe I should just jack it all in? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I don't think he should do that. And yeah. I think it would be a big loss if he uh, did do that. And we're about to find out uh, how resilient a politician he is. Every politician faces things like this in their uh, career. David and I, I'm sure, will disagree on the tax form aspect because we disagree mm. about it david's in favor of everybody um being forced or encouraged i'm not quite sure david you'll have to say for yourself uh, to publish what their income is this is the Lily uh,
1: purvis we should all be a bit like uh, is it sweden or denmark somewhere where it's just you yes, can find But it's out. also
3: i think originally the also the david aronovich argument if i've got you wrong david please say and i've never been comfortable um with that uh, mm. particularly but um So we will disagree about that. My view is that he should do whatever is um, proper and he's required by the standards to do. And in particular, uh, I think his wife should only be expected to do those things. Mm. Um, So my view is that um, he has to uh, remain uh, robust and that the most important thing uh, is the economy itself. Uh, Personally, and I know that, views will differ. Um, I think that we set tax rules for people to follow. Uh, People must follow them, uh, and they must also not aggressively attempt to uh, undermine their intent. It's obvious that uh, um, Akshita Murti didn't do either of those things. Um, So while it's been legitimate debate about non-DOM law and whether or mm. and uh, whether it's been kept, I don't regard it as scandalous.
1: Well, I thank you both for, for submitting your tax returns. You can find it on the uh, Times Radio website right now for, to peruse at your pleasure. Um, David, did Danny get your view right that you're of the publish them and be damned school? Uh,
2: yeah, but, I mean, as a, as a national policy, not applied to individuals and not to everybody else, uh, uh, Norway and Sweden both have this policy. Yes. Um, the argument against it is, the first one, which well, it's none of your business. Well, actually, unfortunately, what tax you pay is everybody's business. Um, and so I don't believe that argument uh, holds at all. And the second argument was, well, you'll be so beset by horrible, envious people, the people who earn a lot will be the subject of envious attack. Well, that hasn't been the case in Norway or Sweden where they do it, so you'd have to have a kind of rather dim view of the British to think that that was going to be true. Uh, The only good argument that I've ever heard about this is that people who don't earn a lot will feel shamed by the fact that they don't, uh, being known to everybody else. But then, as we know, nobody will be interested in that. So I think that's a pretty kind of... I suppose family might be and so on, but that's the kind of strongest argument. So let's get that one out of the way. Anyway, it's not going to happen because there are too many vested interests that make absolutely sure it, it wouldn't. Mm. And the English person's home is his castle and his tax return is his private affair, I think will prevail for the time being, whatever, I think. It's a bit like inheritance tax. You know, loads of people support lower inheritance tax, despite the fact that the vast majority of people will never be rich enough to have to. pay... Pay it uh, in a significant way, well, that's just, mm. you know, that just goes to show the thing that I think which is interesting here, which is the very complex attitude that um, British politicians and the British public actually have with lots of money. I mean, uh, uh, and, this is, uh, and this is really uh, part of the problem here. Um, uh, the idea that you have a Chancellor who had a green card, i.e. was effectively saying I would like to make my permanent home in the United States while he was Chancellor is bizarre enough to a lot of people. But, but, but in coming from a party which has made quite a lot of political capital out of the notion of the unique nature of British citizenship and how important it is not to be a citizen of uh, nowhere, but a citizen of somewhere, it also actually breaches the kind of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy rule. Uh, and that really is the kind of problem for Rishi Sunak. Plus... Um, yeah. So you, you can't British criticise country.
3: him for that, though, David, because you don't agree with that. Uh, in fact, one of the things that I find attractive uh, about Rishi Sunak is precisely that that's not his perspective. And I think the, go- the government could do with more people that don't have this perspective rather than fewer. Uh, and I, um, and you, you, you are in favour, aren't you, of uh, people having... Um, much looser uh, affiliation with single places, and much more uh, concern yeah. and uh, fluidity about their uh,
1: identity. But the question isn't necessarily you quite, about You are
2: quite right to interrupt. Yeah, right, Danny, to interrupt me mid-flow before I joined up my <laughs> points there. <laughs> it was a very kind of. It was a good intersectional moment in which to uh, in which to <laughs> put yourself. Right, and I note, and I and I note, but I, I note by way of that that the actual question Luke asked you. Um, was what the political situation was for Rishi Sunak, and you didn't answer that. OK, I will do yeah, um, that. Answered, you, answered, you answered in your own way, and that actually lays the clue to the, to, to, to the point um, I was making, probably over long, uh, which is about this complex relationship. Essentially, you can be a billionaire chancellor if you're giving people a whole lot of money, like in furloughs. You can't easily be a billionaire chancellor whose wife has inherited all her money and likes to pay... What, uh, and doesn't like to pay British tax on it uh, as part of a tax arrangement if essentially people are having to uh, go through straightened circumstances, pay much bigger bills and wonder how they're going to make ends meet. It's really as simple as that. So the moment you turn from being one to the other in straightforward political terms, doesn't matter what you and I think about it and so on, then in that case you begin to find yourself in trouble. The problem of politicians' attitudes to having vast sums of money and people who have it is a secondary question which we could come to later.
3: Sure, and I've perfect Really happy to answer about about his uh, political position. It's Did you quite- threaten to overrule him? <laughs> no, it, look, it, 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 it's it would be ridiculous to say it's not a serious political problem because with one's naked eye you can see that it is so i was giving my own attitude which as i've you know explained several often on this program isn't the same as my judgement about what other people's attitudes are or what his political position is it's obviously a serious problem my view is the underlying problem for him is that the economy isn't growing uh, in circumstances in which the economy grows i don't think it would be a problem uh, i think it's a problem because the economy isn't growing i think if the economy was growing, uh, it would still be a political issue for him, uh, the fact that he was very wealthy as a characteristic of him uh, in the same way that it was an issue for David Cameron that he came from Eton for example mm. and that was a much more serious issue for him at times when the government wasn't very popular than it was at the, when, the, when he was personally very popular uh, and um, the issue uh, went up and down with that and um, it never went away completely and this won't go away completely, it's always been you know what a characteristic of his that is a political vulnerability, absolutely,
1: and, and it might not go away completely, Danny. But I wonder if do you think now it has written him off from being able to take a serious shot at the top job? Because that's what uh, many people are suggesting it certainly
3: would do immediately. Uh, but a lot of politi- politics goes absolutely up and down. You could, you could have said, in fact, people did say many times about Boris Johnson he can't be leader of the Conservative Party because he's you know he's been not, not good as foreign secretary or he resigned his office or he's uh, had to resign as art spokesman, uh, you know, uh, because Michael Howard accused him of lying, um, and ultimately did become leader of the Conservative Mm. Party. So politicians go up and down, and a lot depends on the timing. It's certainly not, um, it's certainly not going to help him. Uh, It's possible that it may, that it may prove um, a complete barrier to that, absolutely it yeah. is, and certainly it would at the moment. Uh, but we haven't got leadership election at the moment, so the answer to that question is,
1: it's definitely not an asset, but who knows? Yeah, but but, but and just a final point on this, David, is uh, aside from the lots of money, aside from the, the tax things, the issue of the green card really seems to have cut through, uh, again, because of that citizen of nowhere point, but also because the, the green card he had suggested that he sees his future in the US, living there at some point. And there are many reports of his recent visits to California and meeting potentially with, with executives from Meta and the less, and actually, and the like. And in the mind of the, of the British voter, is that more damning? The kind of person who actually we think doesn't want to stay here for long, and as one person yeah, had it, it sees it as just another and, playground. And
2: so, again, um, uh, here comes the distinction the mind of the British public, it clearly is problematic because what you're sort of saying is, I'll bail out when it suits me. Um, To a lot of people. Uh, To me, I don't really mind that much. I can see that that would be a perfectly reasonable uh, thing to do. It's an arrangement, essentially, that the Americans um, make necessary for a lot of people. I'm slightly surprised that he wasn't advised to rescind that and to to withdraw from the green card when he became a serious politician because it was a fairly obvious area of vulnerability and also because other citizens are advised to do that Mm. (laughs) you know they're advised by embassies to do that so how he wasn't advised I don't know and this comes back to my other question essentially when people say there are two rules one for them and one for us they're not wrong when they come to very wealthy people it really is true there are tools. Mm. They can get to do things, golden visas and stuff like that, so that the supremely wealthy. And I don't think they live on the same planet as the rest of us. I mean, Danny and I are not. Uh, at all um poverty stricken we are pretty well off by british standards etc but we're talking about people who could buy and sell us and everything we have in half an afternoon and not notice yeah Uh, and there is a problem there
3: yeah it's well there is if you are only looking at the outcome but you've got to look at the process the reason why we have a small number of people who have very very large quantities of money is because we organize the uh trading system to provide decentralised information effectively mm. rather than organising it all centrally and distributing money to everybody in some kind, of, on some kind of rational scheme. And the gains to that for everybody are far greater than the losses are of having a few extremely mm. rich people. So yes, David is completely correct in our political, in our economic system, a few people become excessively wealthy but the uh, changes to the economic system required to
2: prevent that from happening I think would make everybody poor. Sure. Sure, but maybe they shouldn't be the people running things, Danny, and maybe they shouldn't be listened to as much as they are, exaggeratedly, by politicians. Well, I don't. You,
3: you, the, 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 we're we're talking about the fact that Rishi Senak is virtually unique. Uh, can anybody mention anybody else who's been in this situation ever? Right. So possibly Rosebery. Okay, in eighteen ninety four. So um, the the. The truth is, it's not the case that the um, country is no. run by load of billionaires. In fact, what it's oh, run by are people like you and me with precisely the sort of uh, God, incomes it's... that you... Yeah, exactly, with well, precisely I... the sort of incomes you talked about. And people are much well, more concerned way, about Danny. that. Let's
2: <laughs> put it this way, Lord Lebedev is in the House of Lords and I'm not. Um, how do you account for that?
3: <laughs> yeah, OK. I think that's a, that is a reasonable point. Um, if you think that Lord Lebedev is running the country, but you don't. Well, what's he in the House of Lords for, then? Well, it's a good question, but that's a different. Good. But it, but it's not a question about how the countries run.
1: Let's leave that there because I've got a couple of other things I want to quickly pick your brain on. Um, first of all. Um Again, sticking with the world of politics, the situation with the well now former Conservative MP Imran Ahmad Khan yesterday was found guilty of um, sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy in a historic case. We've had this ludicrous scenario where Crispin Blunt, the Conservative MP, came to his defence, called it a miscarriage of justice and has now retracted that and, and somewhat apologised. Um, Danny, this is the, the latest in quite a sort of lengthy string of, of cases of, of um well, conservative MPs and also some Labour MPs as well who've been found guilty of sexual well, impropriety. Let,
3: let's uh, concentrate on the Crispin Blunt, Blunt uh, incident, and let's just start what I'm going to say by saying I thought that his uh, what his statements were grotesque, and uh, they represented a grotesque misjudgment, and one of, with consequences because it would have been very wounding to the victims of those crimes uh, to have had him talk in those ways. And the reason why I want to um, Preface what I've uh, with my statements with those words. Is what I'm going to go on to say is, MPs have a very sort of odd relationship with verdicts. They don't. They think are miscarriages of justice. Uh, I regard it as preposterous that uh, um, and offensive that, that Crispin just blunt regarded this as a miscarriage of justice. Since even with the fairly small amounts of e- um, evidence, one's been able to read that seems obviously untrue. But MPs do have a role sometimes in challenging um, what they regard as court verdicts which are perverse. Uh, And um, they've just got to do it judiciously. And what I worry about with his uh, statements, and not merely uh, how offensive they were in, these particular, in this individual incident, which they were, um, but also the damage it might do to other people trying, other MPs trying to raise what are genuine miscarriages of justice on behalf of constituents uh, who've, for example, been jailed for uh, crimes, sometimes quite sordid crimes that they didn't mm. commit, yeah. uh, to have flippantly as it seems to me uh, claimed that the court got something wrong when he had only attended the uh, the defense case and the summary of the case, in other words, was not in a position to uh, to state um, that the court was wrong on any reasonable basis. I think was grotesquely irresponsible for that for that second reason. In other words, the impact it will have on MPs uh, campaigning against miscarriages of justice, as well as for the primary reason, which is mm-hmm. um, the uh, the impact it will have on the victims of that crime.
2: David? Um, I don't disagree with any of that about Christian Blunt, who apparently wasn't even in court for the prosecution evidence and okay. so on, and yet dissed a case where he hadn't actually heard what the evidence was, which makes you think that he had conversations probably with Ahmed himself leading up to this, which convinced him that Ahmed somehow was not guilty and that it would be a bad setback, particularly to gay people in the Muslim community, if he were to be found guilty. And he's busked it out on this basis um, and run his mouth rather than thinking about what the consequences of what he said Mm. would be and whether they would, would, would help his cause. I have to say... Chris Blunt is not one of my favourite MPs at any at any kind of level. I mean, on, on a whole variety of issues, but the thing I was struck by was we're only a few months since the MP for Dover. Um, I think compromised herself badly in the support she gave to her husband, who was found guilty of rape. Um, he was the former MP for uh, for 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 Dover, um, uh, who was. Uh, and I think Danny, um, uh, you remember the uh, the Elfic case. Yeah. Um, uh, of the course. And that was very bizarre as well. It was almost like saying, but I know this person.
3: Yes. Well, listen, David, And and
2: consequently, they can't be guilty.
3: Yes. uh, Listen, not only do I remember the Elphick case, I'd often be in Portcullis' house, which is part of the House of Commons, and Charlie Elphick, who would see me, and he'd come often and sit down at my desk, often unbidden at my table where I was working or meeting somebody, and start to tell me how not guilty he was. Um, And... uh, in those circumstances, I mean, he obviously, you know, he lied to me repeatedly. Now, I knew enough not to be committal um, uh, to 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 him, um, but it was. I'm sure that what's happened in this case is very similar. To that, it's quite a seductive thing. Someone sits opposite you, looks at you, and sort of says, "I can't understand why all these, why this is all going on. They didn't tell me X or Y, which, by the way, they had told him. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't understand what this case is about, which he absolutely knew what it was about. Yeah. Uh, all sorts of things which which turn out which transpired to be total lies told you by someone you've met. I mean, I only knew him in a professional setting. To be honest, he wasn't a friend in any way. But, um, but." Uh, I'd met him a couple of times before he started doing that. How was I to know uh, what? And and I'm sure that's you know. And I'm sure what Crispin Blunt has done is sort of assume that that constitutes evidence, and um, uh, that he can make yeah. a judgment on that basis, which I just think is incredibly foolish. And I speak from personal experience because I realised myself as this yeah. was being done to me that I shouldn't do that.
1: Now turning to the uh, to the war that of course continues as well in Ukraine. And um, Max Hastings, you'll have heard discussion of this already on Times Radio, has, has written. Um, Fascinating comment piece in the paper today. And David, I just want to read you a bit and get your your view on, on his suggestion of what should happen next. He says, um, I remain unhappily convinced that the war will end or at least could be paused through some sordid bargain that does not punish Russia as it deserves because this cannot be achieved without committing our own forces and risking nuclear war. Um, is that something that you would ag- agree with?
2: Um, uh- I don't know whether I agree with it or not, but it's certainly within the kind of mix. The the, the thing that Max uh, Hastings was writing, which I think we really should take big cognizance of, uh, essentially he was saying, we have no idea just how big a thing this is for Mm. us. Um, and it's not just us. The French show that they have very little idea how big a thing is for them as well, I think, in the in the presidential uh, uh, election first round on Sunday. Uh, there's a question about whether the Germans understand it. So they may understand it better than most. The Poles certainly do understand it. We are at war. We're not at shooting war with the Russians ourselves, but we are at war with Russia because it has invaded a sovereign European nation and we cannot afford to let it win. And the questions of the terms upon which any the, the, the war is concluded depends on how that war is prosecuted and what the Ukrainian government agrees to do and what we think we can tolerate. So I'm not at all sure I do agree with him, but I'm not at all sure that I don't agree with him about the outcome. But the one thing I'm absolutely certain about is we think it's business as usual here and in these other countries. We think we're not going to pay a price mm-hmm. for the amount of support we're going to have to give to Ukraine, re, re, uh, reconstructing it uh, in terms of prices that we will pay ourselves in terms of energy, um, in terms of the importance of this. I just don't think we've got it. It's a bit like the early days of the pandemic when we think, oh, well, it's probably in China. But we'll probably make some things ready and maybe we're going to have to do uh, we're going to have we're going to have to take some measures ourselves. It really feels like that to me. Uh, and it's going to be much bigger than that, either that or we're all going to say, oh, well, you know, we've done our bit for Ukraine. We can't yeah. do any more. If the Russians do win, we'll just, and our children will just have to live with the consequences for the next 200 years.
1: And, and Danny, do you agree with that? And also, do you think it's not just, as as David was saying, that it's um, our own government and governments around Europe, but us as well watching this and listening to this yeah. on, our, on our radio screens
3: unsurprisingly this is the thing that david and i agree about the most yeah. uh, so i completely agreed with that with max hastings well pause is one thing um there's a big difference between pause and conclude the war on the basis that he's suggesting so i'd agree with him about pause it may be necessary to do that it won't be over though
1: danny finkelstein and david aronovich our columnists, taking us through the morning's news uh, next we'll chat chatham house
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: I'm Luke Jones. This is the Times Red Box podcast. It's now time for this. As the war in Ukraine rages, you'll have heard no end of interviews with specialists from Chatham House and during the pullout of Western forces from Afghanistan and during the pandemic and so on and so on. It is one of the most respected international uh, think tank, international affairs think tanks in the world. And its boss, Sir Robin Niblett, is standing down after 15 years at the helm. So we thought it would be um, quite interesting to have a look back at uh, the 15 years. Uh, Morning, Sir Robin.
4: Hey, good to see you, Luke. How are you? Well, Good, not
1: thank see you. you, hear you. <laughs> um, the magic of radio. Thanks very much for your time, um, so Robin. Um, to take us back then. First of all, let's rewind. When you actually joined um, in your current position, um, what was happening? What was the main international issue du jour?
4: Well, interestingly, I came from Washington, D.C., where I'd been working for 10 years, um, running one of the, well, I was number two at one of the, the big think tanks there. So it was interesting to come back to the U.K. after after a big gap of, of 10 years, um and the thing everyone was talking about at that point which might be surprising given where we ended up nine years later um was where the uk thought its relationship with the eu should be going should it be going deeper or not uh, there was a kind of various anniversaries coming up around that time and it was quite surreal moving from washington to uh london where the whole question of literally membership of the eu and how much the uk should commit to it was was such a big topic whereas in washington um yeah the EU was maybe a partner maybe not was NATO more important but there wasn't this kind of existential question that was number one and then the other thing that came in very quickly um, was the global financial crisis global mm. even though the principally affected Europe um and UK obviously as well so I arrived in 2007 by 2008 we were heading deeply into into a big global financial crisis so those are two things that kind of welcome me when I arrive,
1: if I can put it that way. Yeah, And for anybody scratching their heads as trying to actually place what it is that Chatham House actually does and, and how long it's been doing it for, just brief us on the sort of purpose of the think tank.
4: Yeah, I mean, look... Chatham House is one of the original think tanks, if you want to call it that. They weren't called think tanks at that point. That was a term that came out in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Chatham House was founded in 1920 um, in the wake of the First World War. Uh, it was pri- you know, funded privately by um, individuals, members and business people who wanted to make sure the world wouldn't go back to war. And to put it bluntly, they didn't trust governments uh, and diplomacy not to uh, you know, repeat uh, the mistakes of history. And they thought you needed some independent institutes that would um, think about international affairs, think about diplomacy, and and, and also make it more public, less secret, uh, and make sure that uh, citizens who are interested could weigh in and have a voice. So Chatham House was founded in 1920. It was actually called the British Institute of International Affairs. And then was given a royal charter in 1926 and became the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And there were three American institutions founded at the same time, places called Brookings, one called the Council of Foreign Relations, one called the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And these were the first four, really, in a way, to be founded between 1917 and 1921. Um, Yeah, and we convened people. We convene experts, but we convene uh, for all our members who are from all over the world and and, and from all walks of life to debate international affairs. And then we have researchers who research specific areas and come up with papers uh, and try to look a little bit over the horizon compared to what governments can do. Mm. Governments tend to be trapped in the now. And uh, we're meant to pull together groups of experts who can look a little bit further to the future and warn governments about what's going to happen and say,
1: you might want to try a different policy. And we'll get into some of the specific things that have happened over the past 15 years that you've been there in a moment but just on that point of um of the original purpose of Chatham House and other think tanks as well when um, when peace was still a, a fragile thing um I wonder if you think that the need is, is still as strong now. Um, we're always hearing stories about um, uh, gutting out of expertise in the Foreign Office or other parts of, of, of government. In fact, Matt Chorley on this very programme had a story about uh, the number of Russian speakers within the Foreign Office plummeting. Yes. Do you think that is still a problem? Do you think the need is, is as great as it was 100 plus years ago?
4: Well, I would say it, wouldn't I? Um, but <laughs> yes, is the simple answer to that. Uh, obviously, the context is very different. But the new context in which there is 24-hour global, you could say, glut of information, um, but everyone in a way is searching for their truth uh, through social media, through different media channels, um, a lot of obviously privatized media, alongside a big push now for government-funded media. Uh, Obviously, you know we've got a pretty unique setup in the UK with the BBC, but you've got this sort of competition now of Chinese global news channels alongside Russian global news channels, alongside Turkish news channels, alongside Middle East news channels, in many cases, governments are trying to put forward a narrative that suits the government that's in, in power. Um, and the need for uh, newspapers and, and other media organizations to survive in a very competitive environment where advertising revenue is not what it was, uh, means often they may have to, to chase more immediate news rather than being able to do longer in-depth pieces. So I, I think the role of, of of think tanks, providing they're bringing uh, an independent perspective, is more needed than ever. The the challenge for us is to be able to reach larger audiences. We're not big organisations. We don't have the resources of of large media organisations. But the demand, if I look at our membership, the people who come to our websites, who go to our Twitter or or Instagram or Facebook uh, channels, they're, they're pretty large and growing. So, yeah, I think the demand is very much there.
1: Um, Let's have a look at some of the specific things which have happened and big changes that have happened over your time there, the past 15 years or so. You mentioned that you arrived in 2007. Of course, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq um, were well underway by that point. And and, and in your tenure, they've drawn to a close. Um, Let's just remind ourselves, this was Boris Johnson when the last of the Western troops were taken out of Afghanistan. They
2: didn't flinch. They kept calm. They got on with the job. It's thanks to their colossal exertions that this country has now processed, checked, vetted and airlifted more than 15,000 people to safety in less than two weeks. If people look for evidence of the energy and spirit and values of this country, our United Kingdom, our willingness to show global leadership, to help the needy and vulnerable around the world, I would point them to the Kabul airlift of the last 14
1: days. I thank everyone involved, and I believe they can be very proud of what they've done. That was Boris Johnson last summer. Um, of course, Robin, we're all thinking again about Western military power and effectiveness. When you hear that again, when you think of, of the cause of those two conflicts in the Middle East, are you... Are you buoyed and, and are you hopeful about what might happen in the sort of latest conflict of war or do you look back on that period with, with some frustration and sadness?
4: Well, well, I think one, let's separate the two out on Afghanistan and Iraq just quickly on Afghanistan. Mm. I'm you know, deeply saddened, um, borderline depressed by what's where we've ended up with Afghanistan um, there are clearly limits. The West, if you want to call it that, the United States, NATO allies and other countries went into Afghanistan specifically because it served as a base for um, Al-Qaeda to be able to launch brutal attacks on the United States and also on, on Europe and the United Kingdom ultimately. And if you think of the overflow into Pakistan, uh, you know, I, I think that was a justified intervention. Um, But once it morphed into trying to leave behind uh, a functional government that somewhat mirrored the democratic goals um, that we had in our own societies, the overstretch between capacity, focus, resources, uh, commitment, um, and the the forces on the ground were were completely mismatched. So we ended up with what was a humiliating retreat um, uh, last summer. Um, ultimately, given the fact that the Taliban have taken power again, one has to call it a defeat. Um, and it does has nothing to say. Uh, this does not minimize the bravery, the commitment, the lives that were given, the injured soldiers uh, and other uh, forces, the NGO, people who went there, did their best, some of whom died as well, um, the bravery of Afghan citizens who wanted a better future for themselves that uh, did allow the rights of individuals, women, uh, minority groups to survive. I mean, that bravery is undoubted and, and powerful. But the, the, the sad fact of the matter is that uh, uh, although uh, al-Qaeda are no longer there, you have a, a branch of ISIS now fighting the Taliban um, in that part of the world. So, yes, uh, the prime minister was right to call out the bravery of British forces. But I think that was masking uh, what was a, a, a defeat. Now, was it a strategic defeat for the United Kingdom, for for the United States, for our NATO allies, no, uh, in the sense that um, is the UK less safe today than it was in 2001, uh, no, uh, because in a way that particular terrorist threat was was destroyed in Afghanistan. Um, and although terrorism carries on, it now is a very different type of shape. But I, um, yeah, uh, I think when we look at that particular conflict, it's not been successful. Iraq is more complex because Iraq um, in a way is a form of a democracy now there are democratic elections. it has resources it has oil, it has money which is partly a curse but um, it is at least a society uh, and a country which is fighting for its future and where Iraqis themselves, despite the ongoing violence uh, may have a prospect for solution it's partly because their neighbors, Um, uh, don't want it to fail the iranians don't want it to fail for one reason and the saudis for another but um, without getting too much complexity there Mm -hmm. i would say that uh, although um, the intervention uh, and the basis for it turned out to be bogus the uh, outcome uh, may yet be a positive one for iraq what it means for ukraine just i'll be very quick on this in case you want to say more about it um, is that you have to have skin in the game. There has to be a proximity and and and, 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 a, and a desire to commit. You, you can't be less committed than the people uh, who are fighting alongside you. And ultimately, um, you know, the further away you get, Afghanistan being the first, Iraq being somewhat closer to us geographically and with spillovers uh, to energy and, and to... Uh, countries that are considered allies to the, to the united kingdom in, in the gulf in particular you have more skin in that game once you get to ukraine you're actually into your own neighborhood you're one country away from countries like poland um, that we are committed to defend if they're attacked so the the skin in the game the commitment the money the forces the focus of the government on ukraine is going to be so much more intense and uh the desire of this government and other governments to want to commit to nato means that um actually i I feel that the response to ukraine has been well balanced it is uh doing as much as it can but it's because it is closer and so it was kind of that sense if i'm finished with this that sense of overreach the hubris that came at the end of the Cold War in 1990 1991, the kind of over-dominance of the United States, to think that you could fix countries like Afghanistan and Iraq that far away. Um, that hubris, I think, has been exposed, overcome. And now people are trying to think, right, what are the lessons learned? What can we do? What can we really commit to in Ukraine? Where do we say we can commit where we can't? Well, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, so we will sell weapons, but we're not going to put troops in. You, know, you can see the lessons that have been learned over the last uh, uh, 15 years, if you want to put it that way, um, certainly over the last 20 or so years, um, uh, 19 years since the intervention in, in, um, in Iraq. The lessons, I think, have been learned, and it means we're likely to be more effective in, in Ukraine
1: than we were in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um Of course, the other big thing that's happened in in your 15 years at the top of Chatham House is um, Brexit in terms of the UK and its place in the world. Um, Let's remind ourselves of um, what a a sort of crazy turnaround of events that was.
2: We are leaving the European Union.
3: This is the dawn of a new era.
0: Five, four, three, two, one. (laughs)
3: moment in the modern history of our great
1: nation thank you of course that was 2016 and we can debate all the things that need to actually be sorted out in terms of um, brexiting until we're blue in the face but i'm more interested from you robin of how this is maybe meaningfully or not altered the uk's position in the world i guess especially when we're thinking about how we're responding to wars in Ukraine as opposed to in Afghanistan and Iraq, as we were just talking about. Has there been a genuine shift in in the UK's global priorities beyond PR pictures of Liz Truss signing rollover trade deals?
4: Um, Look, my my line, maybe it's a bit too cute, but my line about Brexit is that uh, the UK left the EU to do the things it did not need to leave the EU to do. But now that it's doing them, it might do some of them. And doing some of them are principally about changes within the United Kingdom, the levelling up agenda, to use that terminology. In America, they call it the middle class foreign policy. Um, The fact is, globalisation left uh, a lot of people behind. And um, the EU became synonymous with globalisation. So... Uh, you know, domestically, this government and future governments are going to be focused on fixing things inside the UK in ways without any ability to point to Brussels as being the reason why you couldn't do things. You know, governments will have to deliver. But on foreign policy, um, ultimately, uh, you know, I think not that much has changed. Hmm. The irony, I mean, obviously, is we're obviously outside the EU. Therefore, the capacity to coordinate with other European governments on foreign policy is more complicated than it was before, at least for now, when we're still in the, in the very raw phase of, of, of Brexit. Um, but if you look at this thing called the integrated review that was released on British foreign defence security development policy about a year ago, it said in there, that uh, Russia was the most acute threat to British and European security. It said Britain would be Europe's number one security ally. And although it talked about uh, tilting a bit of British foreign policy to the Indo-Pacific, the bulk of the effort and the money continued to go to Europe, including to Ukraine, by the way, where where this government uh, and its predecessor, uh, the Cameron government, put a lot of effort into supporting Ukraine forces after the initial um, incursions and invasions in 2014-15 done by, by Russia. So actually what I'm going to say to you is I think the focus of British foreign policy remains still close to home. It's Europe and European security. It then goes a bit to the Middle East, uh, where we need to have stable parts of the world, North Africa. Africa, because of the risks of extremism and instability there, can push uh, uh, violence in, over our shores through terrorism, can push desperate people. Uh, through illegal uh, migration to our shores. So actually, the kind of things that worried Britain when it was in the EU still worry Britain outside the EU. Um, And like it or not, at some point, the EU will probably become the UK's principal um, uh, foreign policy partners, not least because the US is a long way away. And the U.S. is also worried about European security, so we're going to have to work with the U.S. to work with the EU. So, I, you know, my, my point, I suppose, with that would be, I mean, yes, we might be able to do a few extra trade deals. That would be good. Um, but those trade deals will bring minimal economic net benefit to the U.K. just because they're far away. Mm. Um, what it will do is create a bit of capacity for us to do some new regulatory changes in areas like digital trade or biotechnology, maybe in financial technology, all this kind of fintech that's providing new types of financial services to citizens. There, there's some room for the UK to, to test new stuff out. But, you know, the returns on that to take some time to, to play through. But the UK remains uh, stuck to Europe, you know, can't, it can't escape it, I suppose, uh, but is not trapped in an endless debate about whether we're going to follow the same route mm. uh, uh, to political coordination Um, that,
1: uh, you know, was, I think, actually distracting British governments, to be frank. And in terms of the situation we find ourselves in right now with the war in Ukraine, um, I I wonder what your concerns are about how this might end. I I ask just because we've been talking about No End on Times Radio this morning, um, a column that Max Hastings has done in the paper today, um, where he has suggested that an end to the war, or at least a a meaningful pause in the war, could come about if they were, if there were some kind of, as he calls it, sordid bargain that doesn't punish Russia, even though it deserves it, because this can't be achieved without us committing a serious amount of forces and and risking nuclear war. Um, is that something that you think is is a likely? Outcome, rather than the dream which many have in their minds of the Ukrainians absolutely smashing a victory and um, Putin really feeling the heat of it and maybe toppling out of office?
4: Um, the, I think, sadly, that it's going to take some time to get to some type of bargain. The one thing we know about Russia's past actions around its border is that it's perfectly happy to live with unresolved Security situations. Same in Georgia. The Russian troops based in a part of Romania or part of Moldova um, in the Transnistria region. Romania, then Moldova, then Transnistria, then Ukraine, and and heading east. Um, You know, it it leaves. We've got Kaliningrad, a little Russian enclave stuck just between Poland and the Baltic states, uh, heavily armed, by the way. Um, uh, I think President Putin likes leaving things messy and unresolved around his border because it keeps everyone on their toes and gives him leverage for the future. So sadly, e- even a sordid bargain may be more than what is achievable. A, because um, if Vladimir Zelensky remains uh, our president of Ukraine or even his successor, for them to do a bargain, and in a way we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to do a bargain over their heads, not after the lives and blood that they've spilt, uh and with the kind of horrific uh, news that's coming out of some of the human rights abuses and, and, and brutality that Russian troops have done, it's going to be incredibly difficult for them.
1: Ah, that line to Robin. Not the clearest. Robin, can you still hear us? I think the gremlins have gone into the system. The, Ru- <laughs> the Russian government maybe was listening and decided to uh snip the wire on that. I think we'll just try and... um turn some computers on and off again and see if we can uh, get him. Robin, can you hear us?
4: Yes, I can. Sorry, I don't know what... Point. Apologies. You just, uh, we lost each other.
1: You yeah. just fell off the line there. Um, but you were saying yeah. that even this bargain might might be asking too much, this kind of messy, sordid bargain, as Max Hastings have, has it.
4: Yes, I said it might be too much simply because I'm not sure whether the Ukrainians can de- can deliver it mm. after the brutality that's been uh, done to them and not going to be able to impose it on the Ukrainian government, I suppose, is my, my bottom line. So we'll end up with Sadly, I think parts of eastern Ukraine under Russian control, uh, the government not being willing to accept it and being very difficult, the Ukrainian government, very difficult for us uh, to then force a bargain that would then Mm. let us get on with a Vladimir Putin led Russia. So we're going to end up, I'm afraid, with a form of something that more resembles, I'm afraid, the 60s and 70s and 80s with Russia behind a a curtain of brutality uh, that. Neither our government, nor European governments, nor the US, nor the Ukrainian government will be able to accept. So we might end up with the violence stopping, but it'll be uh, it's more kind of North Korea, South Korea kind of stuff.
1: Uh, and do you think that we have in the West, and I mean that in terms of governments and also the populations as well, woken up to that reality? We were just talking to um, Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich, And yeah. um, David Ronovich's point was we haven't necessarily twigged here in the UK that we are at war. And it is going to get worse. Not in a kind of troops on on our borders, but in terms of the cost of this. In terms of if, if there were to be a, a full Russian oil embargo, we haven't even started yet. In terms of the the effect that we'd feel at home,
4: I think we are we are in a new a new form of a cold war with Russia, and that realization I think is dawning on people as the brutality is is spread over our airwaves and as. Look, countries like Italy, um, Spain, you know, are, are breaking relations with Russia. The EU is funding weapons. The EU yeah, is funding weapons. 1.5 billion worth of funding for weapons for Ukraine. The, it's, it, this genie is not going to be put back in the bottle. Yeah. We're not going to go back to something before it. All I would say is that the pain of the energy transition, was going to happen one way or another in the next 10, 15 years. And it was going to be painful and difficult politically. You now have a geopolitical reason to follow through on the energy transition away from oil and gas that was going to have to happen in any case. Yes, it will be expensive and be painful. But I suppose there's, there's now a higher reason, if you want to go higher, as a long term, but there's another strategic reason to be undertaking this transition. And if, yeah. if we have good political leadership they may then be able to get the country behind what was going to be a really difficult transition to do without uh, almost a security Mm -hmm. rationale for it. Now there's a security rationale for
1: it. Just finally, Robin, um, there's lots of things, of course, that that we haven't talked about, which have um, happened over the past 15 years or so. I always think about um, the meeting that Barack Obama and Donald Trump had when the, the, the former handed over to the latter. And it came out... Maybe months or even years later that, um, that Barack Obama said to Donald Trump, and this was at a time when not many people were actually thinking about this or concerned about this, he said the thing that kept him up at night um, was uh, the situation with North Korea. And that was a slightly straight – and he was really trying to seriously impress on Donald Trump that that was the most dangerous thing and he needed to pay attention to it. Um, and obviously that sort of took strange turns as Donald Trump took office. But I just wonder, um, from your vantage point, is there anything that we haven't mentioned or something that as you look to the future that is maybe slightly off the agenda that really concerns you um, or worries you and actually we're not, we're not really paying much notice?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, you go to very, very dark places, um, sadly, when, when one has that kind of a question. Uh, North Korea had always been my, my. it's a country run like a cult. And it's the only one I'm aware of that is run that way. Uh, and that is an incredibly dangerous thing when the leader of the cult uh, controls nuclear weapons. So that had always been on my watch. And you're absolutely right. I remember that that briefing and the the somewhat gobsmack look on on trump's face after he'd had that briefing and it's ironic because what it is that each president tends to tell, tell the next president the thing they should look at that they didn't look at so barack obama felt iran was the one thing he had to focus on which is why he didn't want to be distracted in a way by syria he wanted to hand over north korea north you know uh, trump to, to be fair did have a tilt at north korea he had a go at trying to fix it And I imagine that, you know, well, he didn't think of anything when he had it handed over because he didn't want to hand over. But the rise of China was probably the next critical one that you would think he should have handed over uh, and wanted to hand over to Biden. And Biden has wanted to make China his absolute number one focus for his foreign policy and to do a real pivot to Asia, which is what, but guess what? Now, Putin is probably the next thing. And managing Russia is going to be the next successor problem, if you understand what I mean. Mm. So um, actually, a cornered Russia that feels that, as I said a minute ago, that it's stuck without the solution, that is still under sanctions, that becomes dependent on China in a way that wouldn't, could become the really unpredictable actor for the next uh, two to three to four years. So I think we, yes, North Korea is always that danger out there. Um, But I think we have to focus on the fact that we're not going to get a resolution with Vladimir Putin. and As long as he's in power, we're going to be a much more dangerous world than we were when I arrived at
1: Chatham House 15 years ago. So Robin Niblett, bringing to a close today's edition of the Times Red Box podcast. Uh, I'm sorry, we, we could chat forever, but um, give it 24 hours and there'll be a new edition of this podcast. Up your ears, up your smartphone. Um, and if you subscribe, you can get it whenever you like. Thanks very much for listening. I'm at Luke jones 3 on Twitter. You can listen live to the programme if you'd like a... Slightly tedious, elongated three hour version of this. Um, It's on Times Radio. Um, I'm in for Matt this week from 10am till 1pm. You can listen on DAB, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app, um, or you can just stick to the podcast. I'll speak to you tomorrow.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.